Fasten your seatbelts. It's going to be a bumpy night. Live from Las Vegas, it's time for you to be Talking Movies with America's most award-winning film critic, John Barber. You're being, John, you're being so gentle. I've heard you give reviews and you're so rough, you're saying. <laughs> How would you have evaluated your own work uh, in some of the films that you did prior to, uh, <laughs> prior to The Longest Shot? I mean, Much better than you, my friend. <laughs> Our next guest is one of those rare talents who has something to say and can say it funny. He's a writer-performer on the new Laugh-In and one of the most popular, outspoken, and entertaining personalities on the local news here in Los Angeles. He's won a half a dozen Emmys as a film critic and host of his own shows. Let's welcome Mr. John Barber, right over there. Hi, this is John Barber, and welcome again to Talking Movies, and a very, very happy new year. And Doug, a very happy new year to you, too. How are you? Hi. I'm doing wonderful, John. I have a little bit of a uh, aches and pains over the past week or so. Maybe I got the slight Omicron, but uh, it's not deadly, and I feel okay. Well, you sound terrific. Nothing could harm that terrific voice of yours. And by the way, do you ever make New Year's resolutions? Oh, yeah. And uh, <laughs> <Yeah>. my pro- <laughs> I've never kept the one of them. <laughs> there you go. Listen, I've made one resolution over the last 50 years, and it's the same resolution. And you know what it is? I'd love to know it. To never make another New Year's resolution. <laughs> <laughs> when I was a kid, I made them all the time. And I always could never live up to them. And that hurts you as a kid. You know, you can't keep your own promise to yourself because I was just so busy trying to get by. I couldn't live up to my own promises. But anyway, this is going to be a terrific new year. And mine's going to start out with a wonderful, wonderful gift from Donald Jeffries. He's written this terrific new book called On Borrowed Fame, to which I had the privilege of writing the forward, and he tells me it's on its way, so I should have it by New Year's. And right now, here he is to talk about his book, Donald Jeffries. Donald, 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 there you are. After two months, listen, I've waited for two months to talk to you, and I've waited for two months to read my book that I think I did the forward to, and it's so long ago I can't remember. Now I look all over the internet and there you are talking to somebody else about your book and showing people your book. So do me a favor and hold up your book so I can see it. Well, I I finally got it the other day, John. I didn't have it before. That's why. So now I have it. Okay. (laughs) Yours yours is on the way. (laughs) Okay. On board fame, I must tell you, is a title that is so good. It's comparable to your mother's not a virgin. And, you know, I am a massive, huge fan of yours as a 
journalist, and I guess if you want to call it investigative reporter, I mean your books about hidden history and crimes and punishment and all the rest of that stuff, is really the best around. And I was totally surprised that your book on borrowed fame had the same insight and skill of writing in it and intelligent. And so I was really, really pleased to do the forward and honored that you asked me. Now, do me a very quick favor, since it's so long that I have asked to get my book. Please read me the first sentence of uh, the forward so that I can remember that it was me. Okay, I have, hope I can do this without my glasses. I think I can. Let's see. Uh, okay. I absolutely love Donald Jeffrey's new book, On Barred Fame. What a great, imaginative, meaningful title and an even greater, fun, informative read. There you go. See, now I had forgotten that I had written that, and I almost added <laughs> the same thing when I introduce you. So the question that I would ask of you, first of all, it is so far away from what it is that you usually do. What is it that attracted you or what story attracted you to perhaps doing a whole book about that? Well, you know, I, I've always been a, a huge fan of the movies, even when I was a little kid. I was, I was a big fan of uh, the golden age of Hollywood, even though I came along long after that. But I mean, I remember back then uh, it was a big thing when they would show, they used to show King Kong, which is my favorite movie of all time. <laughs> other than the, other than the, the Frank, the four Frank Capra, I call it populist quartet that you love as well. And uh, King Kong is my next favorite. And they would show it every year on television. And when I was a little kid and I would get so excited, you know, when they would show it. And uh, I just was fascinated by the black and white and the, the fact that it already had been, you know, 30 some years previously. And uh, so I just started watching old movies and I heard my dad talk about them and everything. So I, I was kind of steeped in Hollywood lore, even when I was a kid. There was always an interest of mine, it's like sports was. I liked history of any kind. So I loved his Hollywood history. I loved baseball history. And obviously I love, you know, American history. And so I, I, I didn't, I thought about, the, you know, maybe 10, more than 10 years ago, I thought, you know, I started hearing about these performers getting ripped off uh, from royalties and residuals. And I thought maybe there's a book there. I don't know. So I started, to, you know, a lot of these people have uh, their own websites. And so I would write them and uh, a good number of them replied. And almost all said the same story. What royalties? What residuals? And I thought, well, well who, who was the first person that you wrote to who replied? Do you recall? Hmm. I think it was probably, uh, might have been Bobby V, the singer that died a few years ago. Had some oh big hits back gosh, in the country. Oh, my kidding. Yeah, my, I, I can't, I don't remember which, but they, they, you know, a bunch of them replied initially. You know, I had a couple of people from the Brady Bunch, uh, uh, you know, people that were in bands like the Buckinghams and the Trogs and the Ventures uh, that had big hit records then, you know, back then. And, uh, but I gave it up after I, you know, I, I corresponded with these people for a while and then, I realized a lot of them said they were writing their own book. They didn't really want to give me too much information. I understood that. I said, well, I don't know if there's a book here. So I got, you know, consumed with the other projects that became Hidden History and Survival of the Riches and Rest. But then after that, I said, well, maybe I can, because I love show business. And I said, you know, I really love the trivia and the, and I said, let's make this about fame itself, you know, kind of incorporate all that into it. What does it mean to be famous? 
and the history of fame. And uh, then I'll throw all the unnatural deaths, which is more in my wheelhouse. John Lennon, Elvis Presley, Marilyn Monroe, Natalie Wood. And uh, see if we can just put it all into one kind of hodgepodge. And that's what I did. You know, I, I started writing them again. I started hearing from more people. I talked to some of them on the phone, including your friend, Mike Farrell, people like that. And uh, so, you know, I got, I got a lot of feedback and uh, a few people had good experiences. Bobby Rydell, for instance, the singer, you know, he had nothing but good things to say. I guess he, he did well, but most of them didn't. And so uh, that's that part of the book is corresponding with the older entertainers, but it's only part of it. And I, I incorporated what I learned throughout the hit at the course of the book so that I, I started throwing the statistics that I use in survival of the wrenches. I said, you know, for instance, one of my famous uh, uh, examples of the disparity in finance, finance and show business is that, you know, Betty Davis, who opens this great show of yours with her, you know, passenger seat belts, it's going to be a bumpy night. One of the biggest movie stars that ever lived. She died and left behind an estate of slightly less than $1 million. And I thought, that's a very modest sum for somebody that had a career like hers. So then I started looking at these things, and I think Joan Crawford was very similar. And then you look at Step and Fetch It, who is, you know, the, the ultimate example of a, of a racial stereotype from those days, right? I mean, people joke about, you know, we don't want to be a Step and Fetch It and how Blacks are portrayed on the screen. He left a fortune of $10 million. Step and Fetch It did? Yeah, I can't they- think of... Hold it, hold it. How did yeah. he acquire so much money? I have no, and that's did the he thing. Buy back can, his own films? <laughs> I can't, that's the thing. You just find, you can find out in little articles and stuff, you'll find out, they'll, they'll just mention these things and they don't put it in any context. So yeah, it's shocking that he would have, because t- he he was never, I mean, he was, he was a star in some ways, but he was never like a leading man or anything. So he couldn't have gotten paid that much. Maybe he was just an incredibly shrewd investor. I don't know. But that's the kind of thing that fascinates me is why did, especially things like that, Mickey Roney. Mickey Roney left an estate of $18,000 after 70, 80-year career in show business. That's what fascinates me. Is that, His you know, how, children soaked him. Yeah, and he, had eight, he, had eight, he had eight marriages. So, I mean, I just, that's a little bit more explainable than Betty Davis. But uh, that's what, you know, that's part of it that fascinates me is why why the disparity there? Why did some do so much better than others? And uh, so well, that's, with that's Step and Fetch It, he probably wasn't prominent for more than ten years in the thirties, right? Absolutely not. And he, and he did he didn't exactly have a stable life. You know, another thing I, that I didn't even know his his son uh, went on a shooting spree as an adult. Like he went out on the highway and just started shooting at people. And uh, so he didn't. He didn't. Exa- it's like like he you know, got this stable life or anything. So it's, it's very uh, hard to understand. Another example is Lulu, uh, who is, a, you remember her? She was a one-hit wonder from To Sir With Love. You know, she sang the yes. theme song. The, she has a $30 million net worth. I mean, wow. I, 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 I and, then, and then you take somebody like Jackson Brown, who was one of my favorites, who wrote all his own material. And I think his net worth is $12 million. So not that that's anything to sneeze at, but how does she have almost three? That's the, so that's part of the book. I just give those examples. And it's always kind of been that way. I go back to, you know, the, the years of 1936, 37, 38, I think it was, where you can look online and they're available. They show you like uh, what all the people and all the movie stars and uh, executives and everything and made in those years. And it's shocking to see, you know, some of the salaries, they don't seem to make any sense. Some of the big stars didn't make nearly as much as people that looked like they were washed up and, the examples are all in the book. I don't remember off the top of my head, but that's what fascinates me is that, you know, why it seems to work the way our own economy does with the disparity. The only actor I heard of 
who seemed to be smart enough to acquire his own films was Cary Grant. Mm -hmm. In his contracts, uh, the studios were allowed to uh, uh, show the films for a period of like two years and then the negatives would revert to Cary Grant. So he must have left an estate worth hundreds of millions. I think I didn't get the. I think he. I think he did well though. He wasn't one of the ones that you know, a lot and a lot of them did. It's just I just concentrated on the ones that, you know, that stood out as like you know. Why? Well, step and fetch it probably shocked you in a very positive way, and I'm really happy for him. What shocked you in a more disappointing way, other than the fact that Betty Davis only less left an estate of a million dollars? Well, even even Hedy Lamar. And who's not only was maybe the most beautiful actress in Hollywood, was an incredible, uh, you know, a genius inventor, very bright as well. She died broke, and you know, so it's how you know how does how does that happen? I I don't really know. Well, so she much- got royally screwed by the government. I mean, okay. she helped invent something. Yes, that helped win the Second World War. It had something to do with sound waves or something mm-hmm. uh, in the water and. And it became the basis of a lot of the stuff that we do electronically now. And literally, she should have been worth billions, but the government screwed her. Yeah, And, and indeed, she, she was an absolutely beautiful woman and a really interesting actress. And uh, I, I hate to tell you what she said about she, she was asked how she would like to re- be remembered. And she said, I'd like to be remembered fucking and dying in bed. <laughs> so, so there. A colorful quote. <laughs> there, there you go. Now, did you have any or many personal conversations, either on the phone or in emails, with some really interesting once upon a time famous people? Well, lots of people. The problem is that it's nobody that's really famous now is going to talk to me. I don't think. I mean, you know, so I, I didn't even. And, and if I already knew that they were fabulously wealthy, they don't really fit the concept of the book, and they're not going to have anything to do with me anyhow. But so most of the people I talked to were people that had been, and that's the point of the book. You know, fifteen minutes of fame. That Andy Warhol was famous for, and ironically, that's the only thing he's remembered for now. It's saying that. Yes, you know, uh, the Canadian comic, Carrie, brilliant comic. He said, absolutely everyone in America should be rich and famous for 15 minutes, and then they'll find out it doesn't mean anything. Yeah, it seems to be. But I mean, most most of the people I talked to, like, for instance, I talked to one of the councils. They were big. They were big for a very period, you know, short period of time. I talked to uh, your friend, Mike Farrell. Obviously, he was a big star on MASH. Uh, I talked to Paul Peterson of the Donna Reed show, very nice guy, played Jeff, and then he started a minor consideration, uh, which has really helped the child stars. He does really good work. You know what uh, I was always curious about? The kids in our gang, because the son of the little girl that was in our gang, his name was Keith Burns, and I hired him when I was working at Real People. He was an editor, and he used to talk about his mother but he never really told me whatever happened to her and there were four or five very popular kids in the our gang series did any of them leave anything substantial no well that's and, and you know the the main 
the main inspiration of the book, probably the idea really first formed in my head because of Spanky McFarland, who was my favorite little rascal. Oh my gosh, and, yes. Yes, my fa- and I think I think he's the most mesmerizing child actor of all time for a very short window. He was basically incredible as a toddler. By the time he was five or six, he was he he wasn't that interesting anymore. Very strange. He did, but as a toddler. They literally, his first short, they put him on screen and just let him do what he did. There was no script, nothing. He was two or three years old, and they just filmed him. You know, just being incredibly cute and doing the funny stuff he did. He was incredible. But I, when we were first married and living in a small townhouse, there was a restaurant around the corner from it called Spanky's Clubhouse. Oh. It had, had his obvious likeness on it and the art gang likeness. And something, you know, as a huge fan of them, I thought, I, I don't know, something clicked in my head. I said, wow, I wonder if Spanky because I think he was still alive then, gets anything from that. And, that, and, and you know, kind of uh, as a, a interesting coincidence, uh, not long after that, I saw him on one of those talk shows, Sally, Jesse, Raphael or something. And he, he appeared really bitter to me. And I can understand why. Because, you know, he, he was, uh, at, at the time, he was uh, engaging in a lawsuit with another Spanky's Clubhouse type, re- type restaurant. Our friend John Barber tells me, uh, John, uh, Bob Wilton tells me that in Florida, there's another spanky themed restaurant. So it's just restaurants alone all over the place. And he got nothing out of that. And I think he died of a broken heart because of it. And uh, I try, I wrote to his widow, but she never wrote back to me, but uh, he's the inspiration for the book. And uh, I, I was really inspired also by the, the book, Our Gang, The Life and Times of the Little Rascals, which was written by Leonard Malton and Richard W. Mann. And I became friends with Richard W. Mann and corresponded with, well, he doesn't, I think he was friends with Hal Roach. So I don't think he agrees with my premise because to me, Hal Roach exploited all of them. <laughs> yeah. he, he, he was fat, but I, I think he doesn't want to hear that. But uh, and Roach outlived most of them. He lived to be 100. And most of the R gang members, I, I have a whole section on it. I, I, I don't think there's a curse, but they died unnaturally young. And most of them died of unnatural means from alfalfa being shot at age 30 over a $50 bet. And uh, Darla Hood, who I don't know if that's the the little girl you're talking about who was the mother of the son you hired, but she was probably the most famous female lead. And she died yeah. of in forties of during routine surgery. It's very shocking. And, uh, you know, it's, it, and buckwheat, you know, was, uh, Oh yeah. He was rumored to have died before they, I, you know, they're, they don't, I don't know what the buckwheat looks at the end impersonators all the time, but you know, like a lot of the black performers do that. The, uh, Boosters, you know, had that. I, I, and like you, I really loved the R Gang comedies, but the yeah. ones that I identified with the most because I felt I could be one of them was Leo Gorsi, Hans Holman. Oh, yes, I did. Oh, they were great. I, they were my favorite. I wanted to join the gang. Oh, I love them. They're, 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 and I still love watching them. They actually, from what I can determine, they did better. For some reason, Leo Gorsi and Hans Hall especially had um, some kind of financial interest, which most of these actors didn't. Well, I think they did pretty well, amazingly, but unlike the three students who, just like the Little Rascals, they came on TV when baby boomers were young and they're already, so they, they got nothing, and they were much more famous then than they were when they were appearing in shorts in the movie theaters. I talked to Mo Howard's daughter and his son, and I talked to Curly Howard's grandson, Curly G., and uh, clearly there, you know, there was a lot of money there to be made and uh, it, it just never happened. And I remember as a little kid watching, uh, you know, an aging Mo and Larry on uh, a local station, like Hawking T-shirts. 
That's what they were relegated to. And something about that just struck me as very unfair that the, the performers, somebody was getting a lot of money from this, from these reruns, and uh, they weren't. And I, I still think that's really unfair that the people who created it got nothing, not only a little bit, but they got nothing out of it. And so that's, you know, that's a big, big part of the book. What about some of the very famous comedy teams of the 40s that I remember? They would be Abbott and Costello, and they would be the Three Stooges. Tell me about them. Well, the Three Stooges, I said, got nothing because they went, they were, they were their shorts were filmed mostly before uh, television, and then they were sold to television later, and they got nothing for that. You know, Columbia or whatever, got the executives there got the money. Abbott and Costello, uh, I think, did better, but I know there was a, there was a lot of uh, int- uh, arguments between them at the time. I think Abbott, as far as I know, Abbott died. He died after Costello. Costello died young. Abbott, I think, was living on Social Security at the time of his death because they didn't, again, they were, I'm not sure if they were underpaid or uh, Costello, maybe he accused Costello of stealing something from, I don't know, but I do know Laurel and Hardy, who I love, are my favorites. They were, again, how, they were from the Hal Roach stable. Yeah. And, and they were the biggest stars there. And again, they were exploited. Uh, I, you know, I, I, I talked to, um, Stan Laurel's great granddaughter, uh, who, uh, but she never really clarified. She said, your information is incorrect. But I, you know, I found articles about Laurel who in his, in his incorrect in what way, what were you well, she didn't, she didn't specify. I was saying that, you know, I just quoted these articles that he was living in a very small apartment in his yes, final years. And he would invite anybody like a young Dick Van Dyke famously went over there and he would let anybody in and talk to them and regale them with stories and talk to them all day. Uh, he was you know, living very modestly, and a, an anecdote from him that I think you'd like is that he proudly on his wall he had a signed picture of John F. Kennedy, who had, JFK had sent it to him unsolicited. He must have been a huge fan of Laurel and Hardy. Oh my God! <laughs> but, you know, Stan Laurel seemed to me to have he seemed to not be bitter about the fact no. that he he did not do well as he grew, grew older. Yeah. He was very philosophical about it. You know what his real name is? Uh, I've, I've forgotten, but I do know. Yeah, give, give it to me again. It's Stan Jeffries. Is and it Jeffries? His name was Stan, <laughs> yes, that's right. His name was Stan Jeffries. And my uh, son's godfather, Chris Hayward, who was a guy that saved Barney Miller from oblivion. Mm-hmm. And he wrote my mother the the car and he used to write for Bullwinkle and stuff like the Munst- that. Monsters, yeah, monsters. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, uh, created that. As a matter of fact, when he created that, his agent, he wrote, wrote it with uh, Alan Burns and their agent at the Morris office presented it to Screen, Grams, Screen Gems as his own creation. And so uh, Chris and Alan spent 10 years in courts getting their 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 show back. But he knew since I was a comic that I loved comics and had all I had Charlie Chaplin stuff and W.C. Field stuff. He sent me one of the only autographed pictures of Stan Laurel as Stan Jeffries in burlesque in England. Wow. And when I moved up here, uh, 20 two some odd years ago, I had the misfortune of getting an independent driver working for Beacons Insurance, who was a comedy buff. And the picture disappeared. 
Oh, oh my gosh. Well, there, there, there's, a, there's an anecdote I have in the book about Laurel and Hardy. Again, this is a legendary comedy team. Uh, sometime, I think when they were touring uh, Great Britain, they made a, they made a nice film about it a couple of years ago. If you, you know, yes, it yeah, yeah, it's a great film. And they, uh, when they were touring there, it didn't show the film, but they were, they were going through a gift shop and they found some Laurel and Hardy figurines. So they bought them for full price to give us gifts. So, I mean, I, I thought that's, you know, their likenesses has been appropriated. And that's what happened in all these characters. Uh, that, you know, they, they appropriated the likeness of a character they'd created. And to me, you know, they should get the lion's share of money from that. They got well, you know, there it. is an organization. I don't know it. Uh, uh, if I did, I would tell you so you could do the research on it. It's an organization that buys the rights to the likenesses of famous human beings. And you cannot use a picture of Einstein unless you pay for it. So, you know, maybe, I don't know if Einstein's uh, descendants get any money from it, but this organization makes an absolute fortune from selling to Mm -hmm. commercial sponsors and whatever likenesses of very, very famous people. Yeah, well, I, I mean, I, I don't know how far you can carry that, but I, I just think when you create a, a product, whether it's a song or a television show or a movie, uh, and you're part of it. You're the one, you're driving it. You're the performer. And of course, you know, the screenwriter as well, too, the person that creates it, you know, the writer. I, to me, they should get the bulk of that. If it's shown over and over again, they should get the bulk of that. But the fact that someone gets it, like, I don't think anybody else would get something for a picture of Einstein or any other historical figure, but someone gets a lot of money for selling reruns of the Brady Bunch and Deep the Beaver and Andy Griffith and all that. But performers, I don't know why they don't. And, you know, the, the studios objected to this so strenuously. They didn't want to pay for anything. They said, well, that's like paying you for the same job twice. That was their stance to begin. They didn't understand why am I paying you residuals. And in music, it was even worse because you even had the biggest groups like the Beatles and the Rolling Stones. The original royalty rate was something like one or two pennies yes. per, per record. I mean, how many records do you have to sell to make any money, especially when you're dividing up four or five ways? And uh, they didn't really make any money until they formed their own uh, uh, record label. And of course, well, they, you know, the, the truth is, it is getting worse. Uh, I mean, when I signed my deal for real people, there were only three networks in, uh, ABC, NBC. Uh, and then the growing Fox network was coming up and that's all that it existed at the time. So when I signed my contract uh, for real people, that was it. But now you have an internet and you have Amazon and places like that selling real people for which I don't get a nickel. And my son was telling me the other day, you know, he was the executive producer one of the head writers on both the last three years of CSI and Criminal Minds. And he says, Dad, I am lucky because I'm one of the last few writers in this business to sign a contract that now gets me residuals if they show it on the internet or other places. He says, but that's over with now. It's a one-time buy. And he said the cheapest payers now to talent in Hollywood are Netflix and Amazon and the rest of these people because there are so many talents hungry to work, to get work, that they work for now a 
10% of what they used to get when they worked for a network. It's getting really bad. No, it is. And it's, it's, but it's, it's the, the industry really is very much like the economy as a whole. As I wrote about in Survival of the Richest, where the wealth is collected, incredible wealth is collected in very few hands. And the rest is, you know, not that they struggle there, but I have articles in there about how the vast majority of actors in Hollywood, whether they're extras or whatever, they, they make a very modest living. They don't, they, don't, they don't make, you know, most of them don't make that much money. And as for uh, music groups, especially now, because the era of the big record labels is over. Now yeah. you, you go to stream, the streaming services online pay almost nothing. You have to sell, I mean, even Taylor Swift, I think, had to sell 5 million copies of something to make 250,000 or something. I mean, it's, it's an incredible amount of money. The, the royalty rates are very, very Well, low. when I talked to Meatloaf a couple of weeks ago, and it's true, yeah. uh, I thought he had sold 65 million albums. And he said, no, John, I sold over 100 million. And I said, well, if you and I had a penny for each one, we could retire. And he said, I haven't received anything. I, I saw that. I saw I, I said, I, I wish I'd. Yeah. How was that possible? I mean, well, yeah. Well, I, you know, it's. I, I could sort of understand that, you know, uh, during the days of rock and roll, when the great black artists were coming up and they were anxious to be seen and heard. Right. I could understand that a lot of them were robbed indeed. But some of them were fortunate enough to get into court and get some money. Yeah, they did later, but I mean, I, I have examples of it. And you know, the, the just like the studios were often run by mob-like figures. You know, MGM second in command after Luigi Mayer was uh, Eddie Mannix. Yeah, he's a very mob-like figure, and I, I think he's responsible for the death of George Superman Reeves because he was You're having right. an affair with. He was they having made an affair a movie about that. Yes, yeah, he was having an affair with his wife at the time. Yes. So you didn't mess with people like that. The record companies had people like Morris Levy, who ran Roulette Records. If you read Tommy James, the Tommy James and the Chan Bell's, John Bell's book, very good read. Uh, it's very illuminating as to what he did, especially the black artists. They literally just didn't pay them, pay them nothing. And if they, you know, if they if they ask for royalties, they say you want you look want royalties, go ask the king and queen of England, or he'd pull a gun on them and say, here's your royalties. That's what <laughs> I mean. I just imagine that, I mean, and yet they were selling. You know, I, I uh, one of the most poignant emails I got from somebody was a guy named Brenton Wood. It was a one-hit wonder. I, I had this record when I was a little kid. who was uh, a song called Give Me, Just, Give Me Some Kind of Sign. It was 1967, but it went top 10, maybe top five. Sold a lot of records, obviously. And he got back to me, and it, was, you know, it wasn't grammatically perfect or anything, but he just, he just kind of told me how, you know, whatever the name of the record, he thought I'd be happy if he, if he bought me a car. You know, and that's what, that's what happens. They, they would buy these guys cars, give them girls, drugs, but when they asked for, you know, the money for all those millions of records they sold, what, what are you talking about? Now you want that too? So it's, it's got to be pretty depressing, you know, to, to, to have people think you're, because I thought these people were so rich. I was shocked to discover how little well, they were paid. Being shocked and disappointed at uncovering some of these stories, did sometimes you want to pause and say, geez, do I really want to pursue this further? This is... This is depressing. Well, pretty much everything I write about is depressing, John. Your Huey Long stuff in Survival <laughs> of the Richest is the greatest chapter of any economic book I ever read. So there that, you know, I mean, while that will never happen in America, the fact that it almost happened in America is wonderful. 
Yeah, it was it was great. That, and, you know, it, again, it points out that even in something like show business, which is something that so many people dream of going into, and you just assume, and of course, a lot of them do become fabulously wealthy. Maybe some for a time. I mean, not that many. There are not that many Cary Grants or Jimmy Stewart's or Fred McMurray's. Was it, you know, people that's, that were in the business long enough and, and managed their money well, so they can leave. But the, you know, hundreds. But the thing is, Donald, it is impossible nowadays for anyone to gain that kind of personality recognition over years of working in one industry. Right. It's right. it's gone. Uh, yeah, I mean, you, you may have some guys come along who will have a successful internet show for a while, but I mean, those ones that seem to have the successful internet shows don't seem to be very admirable people. No, no. Whereas when you were watching movies and you watch Jimmy Stewart and Cary Grant and Frank Capra movies, oh my God. I want to live in that kind of America and I want to get into that kind of business, but it didn't, doesn't exist anymore. No, it, 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 it well, Capra, you and I both love Capra and he, uh, he's responsible for a lot of my political philosophy, you know, being watching those films when I was a little kid and thinking that these are, cause I'm naturally cynical and I think everything's corrupt, but I also have that part of me that believes in a Frank Capra fairy tale ending that, Somehow it'll all be okay, you know, because I watch those movies and still watch them. And when you watch them, you're, you're filled with that. Yeah, yeah, we can do it. But uh, Capra, but, you know, my friend Joe McBride wrote a book uh, about Capra where he claims Capra wasn't, it was a big phony. I, I got to talk to him about that. I don't really understand it because I, to me, the Capra was the, the one common thread and all, uh, all his movies weren't written by the same people. They were all directed by the same people. And uh, but, you know, Capra is a strange case, too, though, because he he hit its peak with It's a Wonderful Life, which I still consider the greatest movie ever made. That's my opinion. And I think it, it, that was 1946. Capra lived on in, well into his 90s. So he had a lot of years left. And he everything he made after that, I think, was substandard to his work. And he didn't make that many movies. And he just stopped and it's kind of curious because he had so many good. He was hindered by the blacklisting uh, in the. Early seventies, after I left ABC, I got a a, a thirteen weeks on the uh, local CBS station in Los Angeles. It was called Barber's People, and one of the first people I wanted to interview was Frank Capra, and he said he was indeed hindered because of his populist philosophy, not a socialist philosophy or a communist philosophy, just a populist Huey Long philosophy about America. And he was hindered. And so that's why he gave up in making any more movies. Well, it's a shame because he, he, I mean, he, he lived long enough to have, uh, I mean, he left a great legacy anyhow. But, you know, those are, those are the reason why those kinds of films the reason why you know and why i studied so much uh, i go every time i watch i watch an old movie almost every night john pretty much every night and uh one after i watch them i always go to imdb the internet movie database <laughs> yeah. I, look, I look i just look up the actors and i and i, I use a lot of that in the book because there's so many interesting stories i see you know some of them you know especially the ones that died strangely or the ones whose career just ended for some reason like there'll be a, a starring role in some early talkie and that's the end of their career. And so that's what fascinates me because I look it up and I can't really figure out why. Why would you walk away? 
And that's what gets to the broader point of the book about fame. These people fought so hard to get famous. And sometimes they reach it and they inexplicably leave. And this return and work at mundane jobs. There was one, uh, I can't remember the guy's name, but he was in the lead in some early talkies. He became so obscure. He just career just inexplicably ended. They don't even know anything about when he died. He must have died because he'd be like 130 or something, but he died at some point. They don't even know the circumstances of it. So how, how do you go from being a movie star to being that obscure that nobody, but that's what happened. And I, I found other examples of like the uh, Shirley Ellis, who was a one hit wonder of the, a song when I was a little kid that was real popular called The Name Game. You know, Shirley, Shirley, Bo Pearl. It's a huge hit. And uh, she never did anything else. But uh, she was so obscure by the time she died, they said it's something like, it is not known as she had any children. That's what I found. Uh, I mean, I mean, it's uh, amazing. Well, as you, look, as you look at the world of entertainment today, and you wanted to get into the business as a performer or as a writer or a director, where would you go and what would you do? Boy, it's hard. You know, I, I think about all the time, John, because I have a couple ideas for shows, and I, I would like to maybe try Netflix. So they don't, as you said, they probably don't pay as much. So maybe there's a slightly better chance to get something sold there. I don't know. I don't know where you would go because it's not things have changed so much now. Uh, when we talk about the old days of Hollywood, it was a studio system who, which was not good to a lot of the people. And, and it was you know, very structured, authoritarian. It was run by very dictatorial, uh, you know, studio heads. All haberdashers. Yeah, exactly, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> but 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 they produced. It was kind of an assembly line, but they produced incredibly uh, incredible quality product. And so you look at it today, and it's got it's got high production values. Everything usually is top notch. So for for us watching it you know, 80 years later or something, 70, 80 years later, it's, it's, we can really appreciate, wow, the, the, the quality, the effort, they, even though, of course, we, you know, we're sad about maybe some of the people. Well, you know, you, you know what everybody has in their hands every single day? They have a motion picture camera. Yeah. And, you know, the greatest, I think by far, the greatest documentary at one time about a performer in this business was our documentary uh, about uh, Ernie Kovacs, television's original genius. It just, and you can watch it free on, on, on my website. I thought it was the best until this kid in Switzerland made another movie on his phone. And the movie was called Searching for Sugar Man. Do you remember it? I've heard of it. I've never seen it. Well, I must tell you, you absolutely must watch Searching for Sugar Man. It won the Academy Award, I think, six or seven years ago as the best documentary. Okay. Now, this kid was like 32 or 33, and he was bored to death. And he thought, you know, I love telling stories. There must be stories somewhere. So he started to travel around the world and he ended up in South Africa. And when he was in South Africa, every story he went into, I think the, the sound that he heard was this guy named Gonzalez. That was the sound that he heard singing about freedom. And evidently 
one day he asked some guy, he says, what's that? Every store I go into, I hear this guy. And he says, or let's say his name is Gonzalez. And he says, well, he's our Beatles. He is our a verbal, he's our musical Martin Luther King because his song became the anthem during apartheid in South Africa. So he started to do research on him. And what he found out was that in the uh, 60s, this guy had recorded two songs in L.A. And the guy had a great voice and he played the guitar and he was handsome and nothing ever happened to him. So he ended up going to New York where he became a bricklayer. But he was so positive about his life that he always went to work in a tuxedo because he always felt he deserved to be famous. Now he's in his 50s. He's got a couple of daughters. Well, this kid from Switzerland calls the, the daughters and said, could I come and interview your father? And they thought it was all a joke. And they said, listen. he said, no, listen, I'll come. I'm paying my own, own expense. I'm going to talk to him. The guy's 70 years of age. And he goes and interviews him. And he puts him on camera. Then he goes back to South Africa. All of this is on his phone. <laughs> and he says to some guy who's a producer at the studio, he says, if I bring this guy over for one concert, will you help me promote the concert? So they said, yeah, we'll help you promote the concert. So he brings the guy over and the two daughters, they fly to South Africa. Guess what happens when they, when they land? There are 20,000 people at the airport for this a 72-year-old Hispanic, and they sell out five auditoriums with over 30 and 40,000 people. It is by far the greatest show business story I ever saw. It's called Searching for Sugar Man, and Sugar Man is the dope dealer. <laughs> so my son, when I when I talk to my son about, God, you know, maybe you should get in a different business. You know, because you know, you're so talented and you're so likable. And he says, Dad, you have a movie camera in your hand and you can do, you know, you do your little videos and stuff like that. He said, well, there are thousands of people doing that. And he said, even though people look at cats more than they do <laughs> ideas, he says, you never can tell what could happen, you know. But, you know, you have to be enormously dedicated to what it is you're trying to do. And then the sad ending about this, this kid two years after he got the Oscar couldn't cope with the success oh. and he committed suicide. God, I talk about that in the book so much is the suicide rates are off the chart in the entertainment business. And, and the unnatural best, which I talk about a lot in the book, the reason I think the entertainment industry really fascinates me, just from being a fan of so much pop culture as I have, just kind of absorbed it all my life, uh, and I'm a fan of trivia, you know, so I, this stuff fascinates me. But they're the only other industry that can compete with the world of politics, which I usually write about in terms of corruption and unnatural deaths, is, is the entertainment industry. It's the only other industry you find all these people accidentally falling out of buildings like Steve Ding did a couple of years ago, who actually was both worlds. Uh, you, you know, people, the ex-girlfriend getting stabbed 100 times and found in the bushes. You find this, this has happens in Hollywood happens in the music industry, and it happens in politics, obviously. But it doesn't happen anywhere else, and no other businesses in the world. If one of those deaths happened in your average, I don't know, insurance business or something, 
I mean, it would be the entire business would like, well, what, what's going on? Be, you know, be talking about it forever. In the entertainment industry, in the in politics, it's just another day. It's like, okay, we're, and that, that's why looking at these guests, so many times they leave it where they're not really sure whether it's George Reeves, you talk about it, John Bellucci is another one who, I just found out after the book was published, I found out more and more information that John Belushi was obsessed with the JFK assassination, much like Freddie Prince. Yeah. In fact, in fact, Dick Gregory claims that John Belushi called him on the phone the night before he died and said, I got some information I want to give Mark Lane. So, wow. I mean, you know, what, I mean, how, so who knows how many of them are like that? Salminio stabbed to death and he was uh, going to star as Sirhan Sirhan in Orson Welles' abridged movie on the RFK assassination. Well, how many of them are connected to even things like that? We don't know, but they die strangely uh, out there. And, uh, you know, a lot of times, especially in the music business, of course, there's a lot of drugs. So usually they say, well, you know, what do you expect? He's a heroin addict. So under the guise of that, anything can happen. But uh, it's I, I'm struck by the similarities between what we see in the world of politics and then what we see in the world of show business and uh, certainly suicide levels and, and you would think people in the world of show business they've achieved the dream that so many of us dream of and fantasize about why would you want to leave that you know i would think you'd want to absorb every second of it and, and enjoy it but so many of them can't cope and they and they leave it where you don't see you think you know people that were working physical laboring jobs janitors and construction workers you think they'd want to kill themselves more but you know none of them do but it's it's the people that really succeed out here. Those are the ones that want it. So it's I think it's fascinating to, to consider why that is. But it's been a part of uh, entertainment for a long time. I can go back, you know, to the early days of show business, and lots and lots of these entertainers ended it all. all Do you know, of- I know more people who have committed suicide than have died of natural causes. Yeah, and it's, it's amazing. At least twelve of them in Las Vegas in the last ten years that I've been here committed suicide and they commit suicide in very horrible ways i mean not simple ways at all just it's like they're punishing themselves yeah they're hurting themselves more than life hurt them it's it just but the amazing thing about your book when i read it in spite of the fact that these things existed in the book the book was not negative in the least and I guess that's because of the style and the intellect of your writing and the way you told stories. Well, I, I appreciate it. I mean, I, I love, you know, I, I only write about things that, I love, that I'm interested in, that I love. So when I write about it, regardless of what it is, the JFK assassination, the other political stuff, something like show business, Huey Long, I have a huge interest in that. So when I'm writing about this, it, it interests me. So when I'm writing about it, when I'm writing about the golden age of Hollywood and people who, you know, I'm still fascinated by, you know, Barbara Stanwyck and Gene Arthur and, you know, people like that, William Powell, Clark Gable, you know, they, they fascinate me still. So when I'm writing about them, I, it's, it's a labor of love, even though a lot of times I'm writing about some bad stuff that happened. It's still, so hopefully that, that comes through. Uh, but uh, I, you know, I'm a, I'm a fan like anybody. I didn't, I became a writer eventually, which that's what I wanted to do more than anything in life. So how many people get the other than being maybe a major league baseball player? Well, so many of the stars in the 30s and the 40s and the 50s, whether they were male or female, were so distinctive and unique. And there isn't one personality in America like that today. You can't spot it on television. You can't spot it on the internet. And they don't make 
movies that well anymore. Is there a movie coming out that you have any curiosity to see? I mean, I'm staggered. <laughs> Spider-Man is doing so well. Another comic yeah. book. Yeah. That's, uh, that's... And a year ago, when Spielberg announced he was going to do West Side Story, I said to my wife, who was a fabulous dancer herself, and we love the original West Side Story, I said, it's going to bomb. She said, no, it won't. I said, honey, they don't write love songs in America anymore, okay? So I just met a girl named Maria. It's going to be meaningless to people today. And I said, and the battles between the Puerto Ricans and the Hispanics in New York are nothing against the battles going on between the Baxters and the anti-Baxters and the Trumpers and the anti-Trumpers in America today. His movie is going to bomb and shame on him. And I'm sorry to say that it is bombing. But there is a movie that I am, you know, I don't, I, oh, by the way, I just got back from a wonderful trip to Los Angeles to a book signing mm-hmm. at the Hollywood Mu- Museum. And, you know, uh, I've had a lot of people ask me, oh, God, can you find any videos of when you were on uh, NBC doing reviews? I'd like to see what you look like on camera doing reviews. And they never saved them, of course. Anyway, I get down there. And when my former webmaster who went down the Trump rabbit hole when he destroyed my 45 years of uh, television and my work and took it down the rabbit hole with him. What he took down with me, with him, was a, 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 the only review I put myself on camera uh, for the last 25 or 30 years. And it was Once Upon a Time in Hollywood, what they, which I think is the most loathsome movie ever, ever made. And I explain why, even though I think Pulp Fiction and The Godfather are the Citizen Kane's of gangster movies. They're just... They're, they're just incredibly good films. So I'm trying to get Quentin Tarantino to come on like you on my show and, and talk about that. Anyway, I go down for the book signing and I mention this to Carol Hamig. And Carol is the one that wrote the book, The Greatest Reviews I Ever Read. Turns out she has a copy of that video. <laughs> so I found it and I, I reposted it. So there you go, serendipity. I've always been lucky that way. And I was indeed lucky when I met you because, you know, I was so looking forward to Harlan Ellison doing the forward to my book because I I loved the man. As crazy as he was, he was brilliant. I just loved him. So when he died and I was at a loss and there you were, and I'm telling you, I'm sure that your forward is much better in Harlan's. Well, that's uh, well. Every everybody you asked to, to do it died, so you know, I, <laughs> I was left last man standing. But <laughs> yeah, but the one movie that I'm really curious about seeing is the Lucy movie. Yeah, yeah, that's that's because interesting. Nicole Kidman is every bit as good an actress uh, as that. Brilliant actress who did Sophie's Choice. I can't Mer- Meryl Meryl Streep. Meryl Streep. Every yeah. bit is good. And the guy Bardem, I think, was playing uh, Desi. Yeah, he was in No Country for Old Men. The Coen Brothers. Mm-hmm. The greatest villain I ever saw, and I think he's going to be brilliant as Desi. And I'm curious to see it because 
Lucy and I were friends for a long, long time. Mm-hmm. And George Byrne told us the story about how she accidentally got to own her own show with Desi, which is in the book. And I'm curious to find out if they tell that in the film. But i that's the one movie that I'm looking forward to. And I am looking forward to getting the finished book of yours. Well, so it's I, in the it's in the mail. You should be getting it every day. I mean, as soon oh. as I got them, I mailed them off. So it's it's you know, it took me a long time to get it. You know, it is what it is. You know, I said I can I can relate so much to these entertainers on a much smaller scale because we all the creators of anything, including writers, and I also understand why you know writers going back to Mark Twain and even before why they were always arguing with their publishers. It's kind of been a, a tradition, you know, that, that the writers constantly, we get a very small amount of royalty rates, not one or two cents like the, you know, the rock and roll groups, where we also don't sell as much as they do. So it's, I can understand them. And I, you know, I, I can only imagine, I get upset when I see my royalties for my books. Oh, okay, then let me ask you, do you, what is your thought about your next book or your next publisher? Well, my next publisher, I don't know. I, I may, you know, go, I have a, um, a good friend that's that's kind of just starting to publish it, but it's it's better than self-publishing. And like I mentioned, Joe McBride, who has written tons and tons of books, worked with Orson Welles, but he mostly he goes back and forth between self-publishing. And he told me I should self-publish a while back because obviously you make more money, but then I'm afraid that you know it's hard to to promote it or whatever. But you, I, know, I, you know, John Perkins, the guy that wrote the Economic Hitman, yeah, yeah. he was turned down by 120 publishers. Yeah, and he yeah. found an old man in San Francisco who published his book. The last yeah. publisher he could find was an old man, and yeah. he gets this enormous, enormous hit. He just never can tell. And yeah. you know, yeah. you're just full of ideas. I'm curious about your next book, but I'm more curious about getting my own book. And Donald, it's yeah. always, always a joy to be talking to you. And I must say, you look terrific. Well, thank you. I'm, I'm glad to hear that. I, I come from you, especially as I know you're, uh, you're, you have that, you still have that critic's mindset. I think it's why we get along so well. I'm, I'm pretty critical too, maybe too critical. <laughs> but uh, I, I understand if you have a critical mind like that, uh, but it means something. So, because you you obviously, I'm sure when someone, when you gave someone a great review, it really meant a lot to them because you were kind of known for you know, for the for the other side, and it's I I, I love your clip of Burt Reynolds when oh, when you say well, it, when, I, <laughs> I must tell you, to me, I was always happier when I found something I loved. Sure, because sure. when I loved it, it made me feel good, and I thought, my God, now I can share this with people and improve their lives by showing them something really worthwhile. And I must say, if they get a chance they should get on board fame because that's more than worthwhile. And thank you again for being with me. And you have a wonderful Christmas and a happy new year. Same to you. Thanks so much, John. It's always a pleasure. Okay. Bye-bye. Take A lot of people like Donald Jeffries who are really interested in show business and in movies asked me how I ever got started as a film critic. Well, look, This story of how that happened to me accidentally, this magnificent 10-year career at LA Magazine and NBC, is in this magnificent book written by Carol Haney called The Greatest Reviews I Ever Read. It is really fun and it is 
really, really informative. And while I was preparing this show for Donald, I looked back at some of my old shows to see if I ever talked about it. And guess what? I found one. I used to do a poor man's tonight show every Saturday night in the seventies on NBC that it was called the 19 inch variety show. And that's the show I gave uh, Bryant Gumbel his first job as my co-host. And that's a show in which I got a call from Burt Reynolds booking himself on the show after I bombed white lightning. And it so happens at the top of that show, I do a joking sort of commentary about how and why I became a critic. So we're going to play that for you now and the introduction to the show. Not only do I think you'll enjoy it, I think you'll enjoy seeing how wonderful some old talk shows really were. So until the next Talking Movies, good luck. From the NBC studios in Burbank, it's the 19-inch variety show starring John Barber with Bryant Gumbel. Ladies and gentlemen, the only film critic in America who has to pay for his own tickets, John Barber. Thank you. Thank, thank you very much, and welcome to the 19-inch variety show. We call it that because 19 inches is the standard size of the average television screen. Um, my wife and I were watching The Godfather again tonight on television. My wife says she'd never miss an El Martino movie. <laughs> but uh, I, had, uh, I had asked my wife uh, what would she do if she woke up the next morning and found a horse's head lying next to her. And she said it would be a pleasant relief from waking up finding the other end next to her. <laughs> I didn't know that my wife had ever been with Howard Cosell. <laughs> but Paramount Pictures, who made The Godfather, barred me this year for an early review I'd done of their Great Gatsby. I said, now I know why they're thinking of charging six dollars. Three to get in and three to get out. <laughs> and... Uh, Universal Studios barred me for an early review I did of Jesus Christ Superstar. I referred to it as Fiddler on the Mount. <laughs> and about three months later, as punishment, they let me back in to show me Hugh Hefner's The Naked Ape. <laughs> that was a movie that packed them into the theaters when they showed it in the streets. <laughs> but the, uh, the biggest trouble I ever got in over a review was right here at NBC over a review I did of Jerry Lewis. Um, he had raised $12 million on his telethon, and the next day I said, perhaps they could have raised $25 million if every person who never wanted to see him again sent in a quarter. <laughs> so, so the next day I was walking down a hall here at NBC, and one of the women who was on one of those tours accosted me. She came over to me, and she says, John Barber, could you do what Jerry Lewis does? And I went, <laughs> So she gave me a quarter. But I didn't, uh, I didn't start out as a critic. Most critics I know wanted to be actors, except for Rex Reed, who wanted to be Myra Breckenridge. <laughs> but 
I came from a, a broken home, and as such, you know, I guess you want to grow up and have attention. And since I was alone all the time, I used to go to the little theater around the corner, and I used to go and sit in the front seat, and I would stare up at those huge faces up there in the screen, and the theater would be filled with the sounds of love coming from the couple sitting behind me. <laughs> and when I grew up, I wanted to be that huge face up there in the screen so I could get a better look at the couple sitting behind me. <laughs> but I lived, I lived thousands of miles away from Hollywood, and I knew I'd never get to be an actor, so right then and there I decided to become a critic. So I turned around and told the couple what they were doing wrong. <laughs> Fellas, I said... Thank you. But even though I am uh, hosting this evening's show as a critic, I can still be very objective. And I love it. And, uh, <laughs> and I think you're going to love it, too, because we have a very interesting and very entertaining show lined up for you. We have Burt Reynolds, and I can't think of anybody in this business today who is more interesting or more entertaining than Burt. You're also going to meet a young lady who starred in Burt's uh, most recent film, and not only is she a very competent young actress, she happens to be one of America's brightest young country singing stars. Her name is Connie Van Dyke. You're also going to get to meet one of the world's top male porno stars, a young man I'm sure some of you have already seen. His name is Rick Cassidy. Now, you might recall a couple of months ago, there was a young Vietnam veteran by the name of John Gabron who held three people hostage up in Griffith Park. Well, John is now a psychiatric outpatient at the VA hospital, and the other day we took him back to that very same hill and taped an interview with John. It's very compelling and very disturbing, and I think one you'll find very enlightening and very interesting. And aside from a few other surprises, you're going to meet the featherweight champion of the world who happens to be L.A.'s own Bobby Chacon. And we'll be right back right after this message.